The I Am Man podcast is produced by men for men. We are here to support men through their individual journeys to authentic and holistic manhood. We believe men play an essential role in securing the future of generations and deserve to be seen and heard. Our podcast is a safe space where men from all walks of life can come and process through life's challenges to become the best versions of themselves. Uh, hi, Brandon Delagrantes. I am so excited that you're here. Um, and you're always in Amsterdam. OMG. <laughs> you're always in you're always in Amsterdam. What time is it there? It is eight uh eleven in the morning. Wow. So Brandon, welcome to uh this I am man podcast. This is this one is going to be a little bit unorthodox. I'm excited, guys, to have Brandon with us because Brandon is high key, uh, well known and very famous in his side of the world. And so <laughs> we are very kind. We are sitting and sitting in front of royalty today. All right. Uh, so Brandon, what we're doing today, we're essentially talking about. Uh, what does it mean to be a man and defining our manhood? Um, I want to redeem. I want to redeem the phrase uh, what it, and redefine what does it mean to be a real man? I don't know about you and how you grew up, but I grew up in the South. And oftentimes when you heard the term real man or be a man or man up, um, those were uh, phrases that were kind of, if you will, were derogatory and they were very uh they created division and they kind of belittled people who did not fit into this one uh westernized uh almost cowboys and indians type of uh male identity persona and so what i want to do i want to bust that down that's bull it's crap it does not exist um and it's not healthy and so, <laughs> so i'm excited that you're here with me today um i have watched your career from a distance from the states and i'm excited to have you here in the studio with us so brandon tell us who is brandon delagrantes Simply Brandon Delagrantes. Uh, I'm sorry, I was saying your name wrong. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Grew up in Houston, Texas. Um, the oldest of seven kids. My father is a pastor, bishop, actually. So I didn't just grow up in the church, but was born in the church. Well, my mother is a missionary, and um, yeah, I come from a musical family. Um, a very loving family, but also like you uh, hinted at um, growing up in a religious family in the South, um, there was also a lot of what the playwright Tennessee Williams calls mendacity, that concept where someone is raped, what you talk about, what they're wearing, or... Uh, there's a tornado coming to town, but you talk about uh, how much you love the blue bonnets. Uh, so that was a, a thematic element of my life um, that I was pretty conscious of, actually, until I began to live in other places. Um, I lived 
in Los Angeles, California, I think back in 2003. And in 2005, I moved to New York. And that was definitely a different world for me. And then at the end of 2005, I came to Europe for the first time and officially moved December the 5th, 2005 to Hanover, Germany. And if I thought New York was a different world, Germany was, or at least felt like a different planet. And what I, and ultimately from Germany moved to the Netherlands. And what I, what I was not at the time uh, cognizant of was how much my origin story dictated who I thought I was. Mm. And it's been through a lot of time, space, and experience that I have rediscovered who Yahweh actually created me to be. Because what I found myself on a journey to was who I was as a child before anything happened. Mm. Because I feel like that Brandon is and always has been the essence of who I really am. I was a child who could be found at any given moment in a corner reading a book until someone asked me to sing a song or recite from a play that I had written um, or to perform a scene from a script or a poem or a little book. And then I would come to the center of the room. I would give a very magical performance that would rouse a rounding applause. And then I'd go back to my corner and I'd read my book <laughs> and I'd be content. One of the other things that was interesting me, uh, interesting about me as a little boy is that I was very sensitive. Not sensitive in the sense of you hurt my feelings, but more sensitive to other people's feelings. I could sense when there was something wrong with them, um, say in Dutch, I could sense that. And sometimes I'd be asking and people would be shocked. What do you mean? I'm fine. <laughs> and I could sense that that was not the truth. <laughs> My intuition tells me that was a lie. And, uh, <laughs> but I was a child, so I just smiled. Like I said, that word mendacity. Mm. Just smile and, and go on because they were smiling and going on. Uh, even when I was five in kindergarten, I got in trouble with my teacher, not because I was talking too loud or disrupting the other students, but because when I was five, I told, I told her, I said, I don't know why, but God is telling me to tell you that you are really loved. Wow. And it was what I felt led to say, so it's what I said. But I got in trouble for it because she said oh, it's not a religious. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't mean it religious because at that point 
of course, I, I, I had been to Sunday school, but it wasn't for me about a religious experience. And that's something, fast forward, that I've returned to. That it wasn't about, it's not about a religious experience. Religion has informed me. Um, but it was definitely a spiritual, spirit-led relationship experience that I was having even at five. And one of the things that was interesting about me uh, at five as a child is that I really did see the beauty in everyone. Mm. So it was not connected to sex. Um, It was not um, connected to sexuality or gender for me. It was the fact that I just could see that he had nice arms and she had nice breasts and they had, I just could see that. That was just the way that I saw people. And I didn't think anything of it until I got to a certain age and started learning about the compartments that I was supposed to and expected to fit into. And if you add to that, and in my case, you do, um, being then molested as a child, that everything that I just shared about who I was, who I am, then began to be filtered through a prism of guilt, shame, confusion, low self-esteem, um, you name it, I feel like I had it. Yeah. And again, if you go back to that visual of that little boy in the corner reading a book, because I had learned in church how to act, I just continued playing the part. I just continued saying please and thank you, and people were none the wiser. And if they sensed, if they were sensitive enough to sense anything else from me, then they just chalked it up to teenage angst. Mm. Instead of realizing that it was actually um, the precipice of my first suicide attempt. And so fast forward a bit to me being, I believe, 16 and my parents being on the verge of divorce. And again, I'm the oldest of seven in a religious family where both the church and our family were the the cornerstones of our lives. So as that began to tear apart, it was the entire foundation tearing apart. And it hit differently because of everything that no one knew that was going on with me. Wow. And so uh, one day I had made the decision that I was done. And because of who I am, I had done the research. So I had gone on 
the internet was actually starting around that time. <laughs> and taking computer classes. The whole dial up, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was learning about <laughs> about the internet and the Mac computers and Apple and so I went on the internet to the Walmart website and searched through guns to find out how much they cost um, and what you have to do to get one. And then I researched uh, how long you had to hold your breath underwater before you would lose consciousness. And I basically was just exploring my options and comparing and contrasting what was the quickest, easiest way to leave this place. And finally, I had decided on swallowing a bottle of pills. So I got the pills. My mother was a nurse. Um, so I was able to get the pills. I wrote my notes. I drank a glass of water. I swallowed the entire bottle. Wow. And I lay down on my bed and prepared to die. An hour and a half later, I woke up. I was not sleepy. Wow. I was not tired. I was not sick. I was not dizzy. I was not nauseous. And that was the first time I got it. <laughs> yeah. And I fell down on my knees in that moment and I was like, okay. God, I'm here. <laughs> I guess you... Uh, yeah, I guess I'm supposed to be here. So, uh, right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, me and you. How's the song go? I surrender. Mm. <laughs> All to thee, my precious Savior. I surrender. And that was my, like my come to Jesus moment. But it was, like I said at the beginning, it was it, it wasn't literally Jesus as much as it was really just a spiritual, physical, emotional awakening of the fact that I'm not here by accident. Yeah. And everything that I felt had happened to me. Um, believe it or not, was also happening for me. And so that was the beginning of an awakening where I actually began reading all of the books that I had heard my father talk about, the Zig Ziglar's and the As a Man Thinketh and all of those different things. And I, so I began also at that time looking at myself in the mirror and speaking to myself and speaking positive things into existence and saying to myself the things that I wished other people said to me. And so, for example, one of the things that I said to myself um, was that I had a beautiful smile. Now, keep in mind, I was born with two uh, longer canines. Right. And because at the time my mother was... Um, 
suffice it to say, struggling between um, struggling between, and so dental was not a part of the insurance. Yeah. Uh, so braces was not a part of the equation, and in that time of insecurity and low self-esteem, I had developed an internal list of all the things that were wrong with me. From having um, crooked teeth, to my nose being too big, to being too short, to being oddly shaped, with the small, tor- uh, with the short torso and long legs and broad shoulders and big hands and big feet, but also being small and skinny and that I looked like a monkey. And anytime anybody looked at me, they were only seeing all the things that I was saying to myself. But at that time, I started looking at myself in the mirror, and one of the first things I said to myself was, you have a beautiful smile. Now, when I first said it, of course, it just seems silly. I was like, why am I? Okay, I read it in a book. I'm I'm just going to try it. (laughs) (sighs) But after a while of continuing to do it, it became a habit. I didn't really believe it yet, but it became a habit. To the point that I couldn't not pass the mirror and not say it to myself. So I just kept on saying it. And then at a certain point, I started looking and I was like, I must be brushing my teeth really good because (laughs) my teeth don't look that bad. I mean, it's not that bad. But I just kept on saying it. And at a certain point, I was like, I. Because you know the thing about a smile is it's not actually defined by the teeth. So maybe you know maybe it's like my whole like <laughs> my whole you know, yeah yeah like my whole cavity is like uh, you know my whole vocal cavity is maybe like maybe that's the part that's making it seem like I I might actually have an okay smile. But anyway, I just kept saying it to myself, and I don't think I realized that I actually knew it, believed it until. For the first time, and I still remember the first time in my life that someone said to me, you know what, you have a beautiful smile. And I got scared because I thought, oh, they heard me talking. They they overheard me talking to myself in the mirror and they're making fun of me. And um, that was not the case. The simpler they simply were reflecting back to me. Um, what I now saw in myself. And so that was not per se the end of the story. I mean, of course, now, 30 years later, at least 25 years later, I know that that was really the beginning. Um, But one of the things that I know now, and if, 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 if no one hears me say anything else, then I, I really do hope they hear me say this. One of the things I know now that I did not know then, through all the bins, was that it's all connected. Mm. What I did not know then is that every single person, place, thing, experience, beautiful moment, challenging moment, confronting moment. It was 
all connected. And it was all on purpose. And it was all intentional. And it was all for my good. And I, um, you know, the thing is, I, sometimes I still, I can still remember, you know, those feelings and thoughts and some of those experiences. And as an artist, I treasure them because I can use them. And as a person, I only keep them on file to remind myself of how far I've come. Wow. How far I've been blessed to come from that little skinny boy that forgot what the little boy knew. And the man who has now remembered. Wow. So, shall I tell a joke now? oh my gosh man you you have hijacked this interview and it is so amazing i'm sitting here going through my list of questions and i'm like okay he's covered that all right he's covered that and it's your your story is beautiful it it is it is beautiful um it is life-giving it's a fresh of breath air and it's it's yeah i think the only word i can out of all you know with all these degrees and whatnot the only word i can use to define it or describe it is beautiful and so just listening to you i wonder what did the little boy know well you know what's interesting is um i I think the little boy knew a a few things I think the little boy knew who God had created him to be. Um, I think the little boy knew that everyone really was beautiful. And that's why it was okay. It wasn't even okay. It was automatic to see them as so for him. And I know that everyone is different. So I wouldn't dare to suppose or propose um, how other people uh see people, places, and things in their environment. But I do know and recall how I saw people. And it's honestly how I still see people. And it's one of the reasons why when it comes to sexuality, while some would call me pansexual, which is that concept of, well, being attracted or at least being capable of being attracted to, to everywhere your eyes pan. (laughs) Um, I could also see myself being asexual specifically because of the fact that it's never really been about sex for me. It's been more about connection and that because of molestation, I have, used sex in my life 
type sex was used on me. But again, in returning to what the little boy knew, he knew that it really wasn't about sex. It was about connection. Wow. And I think the most important thing that I actually learned about being a man as a child came from my godfather. Um, I am going to edit, self-edit what I'm going to say about some of the other men in my life just in case they listen to this podcast. But suffice it to say that some of the pivotal men in my life were interesting and sometimes non-consistent examples of what it meant, what it meant to be a man. Wow. And that's not even unfortunate. It simply is what it is. Yeah. And as a result, when I met my godfather, because I think I met him when I was 10 or 11, Apparently, I had another godfather, but he was inactive. So <laughs> when when my parents met um, this couple, the Johnsons in Houston, Texas, uh, they fell in love with them and, and, and they fell in love with us. And um, apparently my, my parents had asked him about uh, being the godparents for my younger brother. And they were like, well, we love all the kids, so we'll just take them all. Wow. And they did. And... I had a very close relationship with my godfather because he was a shining example of what it meant to be a man. Um, He had some, he taught me some principles that maybe as a child I could only listen to. And as an adult man, now 42 years young, I can really appreciate what he was telling slash teaching me at the time. Things like, save your money. Um, He said to me as a child, he said, you know, I don't make a lot of money. He was a garbage man. He said, I don't make a lot of money. He said, but what I do is I don't spend all the money I make. He said, you you see your godmother. You see how she is. You know, she likes to shop. You know, she likes nice things. I knew when I married her what it was going to take to keep that woman happy. (laughs) <laughs> he said, but I can do it because I don't spend all the money I got. And uh, I didn't know how at the time how important that lesson would be to me, how foundational it would be to me as someone who can now thankfully say that I am debt-free. But it really was a journey. Yeah. Because that was not the example that I had with the pivotal men in my life. Uh, he talked about uh, relationships. He talked about the fact that he, as a younger man, and in his case, he meant like five years before, uh, <laughs> was uh, was very active. And yeah, just to be a hundred percent about it, you know, had had different had had different wives and had different baby mamas and. And had even had a, a run around with my, with my godmother. But he said, you know what? The thing is, 
what she did, and that's what made her different, and that's what made me faithful, is that before we got married, she said, and she's a lot younger than me, before we got married, she sat me down, and she went through every single thing of what she expected, what she wanted, what she could tolerate, what she would never tolerate, and what she was willing to do. And she said what, what she, he said, and what it did is it not only made it clear for me, so I didn't have to wonder or guess what to expect, I was able to honestly evaluate and say, I can do that. He said it, he said it may sound like a business negotiation, and, and, and that's what it was to support the love that we already felt. Yeah. He said, but it was the best thing. He said, because it also gave me the opportunity to be honest with her. He said, I was able to be honest with her about the fact that one of the reasons that I ran around so much is because my other wives and girlfriends didn't want to give me sex. And I, I, I like to have sex. So I told her from the beginning that that's what I needed from her. Now she could also cook really good. But aside from that, <laughs> that, that's, that was the main thing that I wanted to be able to know that I could be with my wife. And he said, you can think whatever you want to think about it, but it worked for us because we were honest. And so, again, it informed me about the importance of being honest because I was living at the time in a home with people who should have been divorced a long time ago. But for the lack of honesty, and I say that with respect because, of course, you know, people stay for kids and they stay for all the different reasons they stay for. Not realizing that no matter how young or how old your children are, they're not stupid. Right. And even if they don't know facts, they have feelings. But the biggest lesson that my godfather told me about being a man, and he literally said it to me, and that was something that I got as a child and have carried with me through adulthood. He said, you know what? Uh, where I grew up, the boys always wanted to want to be rough and tough. You know, they always want to play, play football, play sports. He said, you know, the thing I learned about being a man, a man is real simple. A man is somebody who does what they say they going to do. Now, here I am, a, a kid, and I'm listening, and I'm thinking to myself, 